0: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. Five
1: four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, 5, 4, 3, 2... 1, Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and welcome to the Space Nuts podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley, your host, who knows nothing about astronomy, and Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, who knows... A hell of a lot more than I do about astronomy. Hello, friend. How, how are you
0: doing, Andrew? It's probably only, you know, 2 or 3% more, but it might sound like a lot.
1: <laughs> well, it's like saying I know people in Western Australia and there's only three people that live there. <laughs> That's correct. Mm, and I do know them all. Yes, I'm sure you Now, <laughs> this week we're going to look at uh, the planet Mercury. Uh, which, um, interestingly enough, over the next few weeks will be visible to the naked eye in our skies. Uh, We're also going to be looking at um, a a crater on the Moon, and and they've found out some fascinating things about this particular crater. And we're talking about an enormous crater. I mean, whatever hit it, hit it hard and and, uh, left its mark all these billions of years later. And finally, uh, we, we talked about the human eye a couple of weeks ago and, and how zero gravity can perhaps impact on long-term zero-g travel in space. Uh, not with everybody, but maybe one in a hundred astronauts would suffer the affliction of eye damage. Uh, we're going to look at the human eye again from a, a completely different perspective because they've they've been doing some experiments on on how little light the human eye can detect. And they think they've got it down to a a really minuscule amount, which I find amazing. Uh, We'll get to that shortly. First of all, Mercury, Fred. Now this is a planet closest to the sun, uh, quite an extraordinary planet, pockmarked with uh, adolescent acne like nobody's ever seen before. (laughs) Uh, But also uh, one of the hottest places you can be as well as one of the coldest, depending on which side you're on at any particular time. But um, what they're what they're discovering about it now is that it might not be everything, or there might be more to it than we than we originally thought. Uh, Literally, indeed, that's right. Um, so Mercury,
0: you know, <clears throat> when we look at Mercury, uh, a world um, rather bigger than our moon, and similar in appearance, in that it's got a very heavily cratered surface, uh, no sign of an atmosphere. Um, uh, it would probably. Uh, disappeared into space, being that close to the sun. Uh, but Mercury was really a, a planet that was quite mysterious in terms of its origins and the sort of chemistry that's taken place as it's evolved, uh, until very recently when Uh, NASA's MESSENGER spacecraft went into orbit around Mercury. Um, I think between 2011 and 2015, uh, MESSENGER was uh, orbiting the planet Mercury and was festooned, like all these spacecraft are, with lots of uh, sensitive instruments that could make measurements of the surface. And indeed, because of the way the orbital parameters behave, to to get some ideas of what the inside structure of, uh, of the planet is like. MESSENGER, by the way, was um, an acronym. Uh, You know, Mercury is the winged messenger, uh, yes. And I always thought this was... My my, my newspaper growing up, and it still yep. is, was the Maitland Mercury. Maitland Mercury, there you are. That's another messenger. messenger. Yeah. Mm. So uh, the acronym, I, I've always thought it was perhaps the most contrived acronym that NASA have ever come up with. It's the Mercury Surface, Space, Environment, Geochemistry and Ranging Probe. And if you take <laughs> bits and pieces of all those words, <laughs> you get messenger. Now, that might be contrived, but the mission itself has not been. It was very very successful. It ended actually with the messenger spacecraft being uh, being basically uh, c- dumped onto the surface of Mercury. Um, n- not um, accidentally, this was intentionally done and actually observations were made. Uh, of, so it wasn't Russian is what you're saying. It was not Russian in, that's right, <laughs> 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 to the surface. Um, okay, so <clears throat> what uh, what did it learn <clears throat> that relates to the origins of mercury something very interesting <clears throat> because the uh, the spacecraft carried a thing called an x-ray spectrometer it looks at the x-radiation x-ray radiation coming from the surface and that in turn is caused by the surface being bombarded by subatomic particles from the sun uh, you've got the sun quite nearby giving off these solar flares which produces uh, high energy subatomic particles, they hit the surface and that impact causes X-rays. And so by doing what's called X-ray spectrometry, you can actually analyze what the surface composition of Mercury is. And the spacecraft's uh, uh, users, the experimenters who were working on this, Uh, actually determined the chemical composition in 5,800 different places on the surface of mercury corresponding to different lava deposits these are deposits of lava that has been basically that have been er erupted from within the planet's interior so by doing that they had this huge archive uh, database of chemical composition uh, of a very large uh, area of the planet and the, the big news is that there were significant differences from one place to another in, in the chemistry. But uh, some of the um, ideas that were being floated uh, came rather surprisingly from experiments that were made to synthesize rocks like the ones that we see on, uh, on Mercury Um, So there's a team that that are based actually predominantly in Europe. Um, It's uh, uh, led by uh, uh, a scientist in the University of Hanover. uh, And they uh, basically built an oven, a kind of furnace, and got various chemicals in it uh, with silicon, the the raw material of rocks. Uh, Extreme heat was applied, and uh, they discovered that they could actually synthesize very accurately the various range of rocks that were found in the lava on Mercury. Um, And they they actually, I think they selected two extremes, the the older lava deposits and younger lava deposits, which, uh, you know, they're they're separated by uh, of order a billion years. And Mm. what they found was, um, first of all, that they could synthesize the rocks very accurately, But then they found uh, tiny crystals in in these rock samples uh, that basically give you an idea of the temperature at which they solidify. And they found that in the two extremes, the younger and older, um, they found very big differences. And what this points to is uh, a change, a rapid change in the temperature of mercury that we're talking now. Back in the early history of the solar system, maybe four billion years ago, but it changed its temperature changed by 240 degrees Celsius over half a billion years. That sounds like a relatively slow uh, cooling, but nevertheless, it's quite rapid when you compare it with what happens on the Earth, which has, still has a hot core. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Perhaps even more surprisingly, excuse me, I'm getting so excited about this I can hardly speak. Andrew, uh, <laughs> they um, they basically found that the, the sort of raw material for Mercury, that the, the stuff from which Mercury was fabricated in its early period, and we know that planets are made by smaller uh, objects sticking together, they come together under gravity, and eventually you get something that's big enough that its own uh, internal gravity pulls it into a spherical shape. Uh, they they discovered that the, the raw material of Mercury was actually the same as... Uh, we find in a rare class of meteorite, a thing called an enstatite chondrite. Sounds like a gobbledygook name. But we, mm. we know this stuff because these are, we see these things in meteorites. Uh, it's now believed that Mercury was formed from one of those, not just one single meteorite, but uh, probably a, a very large number of them, which may have come from further out in the solar system. Like so many pieces of research, this uh, study has not only told us more about Mercury, it's also opened up far more questions about Mercury. How did it get to have this rare uh, meteoritic formation uh, uh, composition? We don't know the answer to that, but um, I'm sure continuing research will at least give us some hints.
1: Yes, and it just opens up the mind about how variable the different planets in our very own solar system are we're we're discovering thousands of exoplanets and yet in our own solar system you've got a bit over a handful of planets that are all incredibly different in 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 their formation and their makeup and and now we're discovering that the you know this this little rock close to the sun may actually be so very rare when you, when you, when you analyse the, the chemistry. Yeah, that's right. Um,
0: it, it, the Mercury has the advantage, which we don't have here on Earth, that its surface has not been regenerated by plate tectonics. Of course, that's the thing about the Earth's surface. It's changing all the time uh, because of plate tectonics. So Mercury is very much a, a touchstone. It's, a, you know, it, it's a, almost like a Rosetta Stone of planetary formation. So this is very interesting stuff. Uh, that we're
1: learning about it. Mm, much more to learn by the sound of it. Indeed, that's right. Uh, we will keep an eye on Mercury, no doubt, uh, and we'll give you the message first here on Space Nuts. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, this, this topic's not that dissimilar to the one we were just talking about with the uh, meteorite hitting Mercury billions of years ago and, and creating this very rare combination of of chemistry Uh, we're going to now focus on one of the biggest craters uh, created on the moon and this was an asteroid impact Uh, and and they've been able to find out a bit more about this and uh, what I like about it is that it's actually the right eye of the man in the moon (laughs) (laughs)
0: yes it's only the man in the moon if you're looking from the northern hemisphere of course because from our latitudes we see well some people see a rabbit some people see a wallaby um, we see his butt. <laughs> yes, that's right. So, uh, in fact, uh, it is... Uh, so what people in the Northern Hemisphere might think of as the eye of the man in the moon, we think of as the body of the rabbit, wallaby, or whatever it is. It's a, mm. that, the very large um, sort of greyish area uh, to the to, to what we see as the, the bottom edge of the moon. And it, it has a, a, a technical name, of course. It's called... Uh, mare imbrium. These grey areas on the Moon are all called uh, Mare something. Mare is the Latin word for sea, and these uh, were thought originally to be seas uh, by uh, early sky watchers, people who didn't have the benefit of a telescope. We now know that they in some ways were seas, but they were seas of molten lava at one time in the history of, uh, of the Moon. Uh, they are basaltic flows. Um, so the, um, the Mare imbrium uh, is actually uh, a sea of lava that collected in a basin, so a, a depression, which, as you say, is really nothing more than a very large crater. Um, that cratering probably took place something like 3.8 billion years ago when a lot of stuff was flying around in the solar system. Uh, the reason why this is hitting the headlines at the moment, Andrew, is because even though Mari Imbrium is very, very well studied, uh, and by the way, the name means the sea of showers. It's uh, all about weather. <laughs> it's the sea of rain sometimes. Um, the, um, the, the, even though it's been very well studied, uh, what has not really been done is a proper study of the kind of object that might have caused that. What was it that collided with the moon to produce this huge um, depression in the surface? And the answer is a bit surprising. What has been done in previous studies of this kind of thing are computer uh, simulations, where you you basically simulate one object impacting another and look at the energy that's uh, contained in that impact, look at the resistance of the rock that you know the moon was made of and work out basically what size the dent is in the the side of the moon. Um, Now, the imbrium crater is actually about 1200 kilometers across. It is not a small feature. So you, would, as, you would assume that um, it was something fairly big. And the computer modeling has always suggested something round about 70 or 80 kilometers across, which is actually uh, quite large for an impacting asteroid. But the new work that's being reported in this story uh, is uh, surprising in, in its own way. Uh, this is work conducted at Brown University in the USA. Uh, and it's got a slightly hands-on uh, component to it, a bit like the idea of melting sand in a furnace, uh, which we were just talking about, to create to recreate the lava flows of mercury. What these guys did was used a hypervelocity gun, uh, which um, shoots projectiles at uh, a, a metal plate, basically. Uh, so these projectiles uh, get up to something like 6 kilometres per second in the hypervelocity gun. So um, the group at Brown University used this hypervelocity gun, they used the uh, hyperspeed camera, and they basically recorded impacts that allowed them to recalculate the mass or the diameter of the object that caused the imbrium basin on the moon and the bottom line is that they came out with something very much bigger, something more like, um, you know, more like 250 kilometres across rather than just 70 or 80 kilometres. The, the asteroid was 250 kilometres. That's right, kilometers. yes, the thing that hit the moon and made that crater. So that's um, it's actually a fifth of the size of the crater itself. So it's uh, it's a large object. What it's telling you is that our computer studies might underestimate these things when you compare it with the real-world studies that you can do by experimentation. So that's, um, you know, that's putting a different slant on not just the Imbrium basin, but the other large basins that are on, uh, on the near side of the moon that, that form the other maria that we see uh, with the naked eye, the other structures in the man in the moon, or indeed the rabbit in the moon or whatever.
1: I, I just can't imagine what sort of damage it must have done at the point at the time of impact i mean now we're looking at you know gravity putting everything back together again but it must have done some awful damage yes
0: and and not just to the moon either the moon was close enough to the earth then because this was early in the history of the solar system the two objects were significantly closer together than they are now that the earth itself would have been sprayed with debris from this event as well
1: yes oh well uh, where do you start looking <laughs> that's that's the thing I mean, if all that stuff showered down on earth um, and and Earth has some similar properties in many ways to to the moon as we've as we 've discussed in the past so Um, how do you know what's on Earth that came from the Moon and what was on Earth originally? I mean, you you, you go nuts trying to figure that out.
0: Well, they do. Uh, Scientists uh, are (laughs) thinking of that all the time. We've met some of them, actually, and they're not nuts, but they certainly concentrate on the details. (laughs) Yes,
1: I'm sure they do. There must be a way, though. I'm sure they'll figure it out if they haven't already. Absolutely. Now, you're listening to Space Nuts with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. OK, we checked all four systems and with a go. Space Nuts. Now, to finish, uh, Fred, we're, we're going to look at something we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and that is basically talking about something we look with, <laughs> and those are our eyes. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the effect of zero-g in a long-term zero-g environment and the effect on the eyes and, and how... Uh, it certainly impacted on one astronaut who who basically lost his ability of focus because of the pressure buildup on his um, on his optics uh, due to the zero-g environment and and uh, what was happening behind his eye and his brain and the fluid in his head and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's, it certainly looks like a potential problem for long-term space travel. But uh, what we're going to look at today is uh, a bit of a a study into the human eye and its capacity to detect light. And what they've been trying to find out is how little light we can see before we can't see light. (gasps) Is that basically the nuts and bolts? It it is,
0: yes, that's very well put. Um, It's uh, of relevance. I mean, why are we talking about this in a a segment that's devoted to astronomy and space science? And the answer is uh, astronomers, of course... Um, especially in the days when visual observations were really the mainstream of astronomy. They aren't now because we use electronic detectors that we know can count individual particles of light. But um, many amateur astronomers still look through telescopes, and for certain things, uh, professional astronomers do as well. And so we're very well aware of the limitations of the human eye when it comes to looking at very faint levels of light. Um, We, for example, use techniques called averted vision. If you're looking for something very faint in the field of view of a telescope, what you do is you look off to one side, and that then means that the image of whatever it is you're looking for actually falls on a rather more sensitive region of the eye, what are called the the rods of the eye, uh, the eye's retina, which are more sensitive to very low light levels. So you tend to see things very faint things by averted vision. Back in the 1940s, uh, experiments into the physiology of vision uh, established that uh, a person who was dark adapted, that's to say their eyes have achieved their full sensitivity to faint light, they could report light signals um, as low as just a handful of photons. Now, photons a what in quantum physics we understand the individual particles of light are. They, are, they carry individual uh, segments of energy. It's a very low amount of energy. I can tell you it's about 4 times 10 to the minus 19 joules, uh, which doesn't mean anything to anybody except that these things carry very small amounts of energy. So photons are what we can actually record in very faint light levels. So we, we knew, uh, we've known for 70 years that just uh, five to seven photons will actually produce a stimulus response in an eye. And the question that's been asked more recently by, um, by a group of scientists uh, who are interested in this sort of work is whether human eyes can detect a single photon. One... That's, the, that's the minimum that's possible right. amount of light the absolute minimum possible amount of light and um, astonishingly the answer is yes uh, wow. they have uh, basically devised an experiment um, it's what they call a psychophysics procedure um, which basically means you're combining physiology and um, physics um, and use a special light source that we know that uh, individual photons can be generated. And uh, what they have discovered is that yes, you can see individual photons, but the probability of seeing one uh, is enhanced um, by the detection of an earlier photon. So, if you get a photon that hits the eye, and then another one follows it, you're li- you're much more likely to detect the second one uh, because your eye's kind of already been sensitized. Okay, um, it's r- really um, to me um, it highlights just what an astonishing organ the human eye is. Because um, if you go out in full sunshine during the day, um, your eye goes through some physiological processes. The iris shuts down to let in as little light as possible. Um, The retina bleaches to stop damage occurring to to the retina. And you basically are sensitive only to as much light as you need because of the brightness of the sun. And then... Um, If you go out, um, you know, hours later into a completely dark environment, your eye becomes what we call dark adapted, the iris opens up and all sorts of chemical changes take place to enhance, enhance the sensitivity. The difference in sensitivity between those two states is a million times. So your eye is a million times more sensitive when it's dark adapted than it is when it's in full sunlight. And this, That's fascinating. It, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's why we can, you know, we can see by the light of the stars. If you go somewhere where you've got a clear sky with the, the the stars shining, you don't actually need a torch if your eyes are fully dark adapted. And yet, um, the amount of light that you, you would your eye will be subject to during the days is, is many, many millions of times more, and the eye still copes with that. So, in some ways, it's not surprising that we can find individual photons, uh, but it does uh, underline what a wonderfully um,
1: adaptable organ the human eye is. And perhaps answers the question as to why we can see so many stars at such a vast distance. Yes, that's uh, right. we, we, we have the capacity to pick up such minute amounts of light. Indeed, And, and did you know, Fred, this might surprise you, that, that humans have known about this capa- uh, capability for, for a very long time, this light adjustment capability of the eyes they 've only recently discovered that well at least their theory as to why pirates wore eye patches <laughs> and and no i 'm not joking, I know I joke a lot, but this is true. They think the eye patch was designed so that you always had an eye in perpetual darkness, yes. so that if you were attacked by another by an enemy and had to fight within the ship in the dark, you took the eye patch off and you were adapted to darkness, which gave you a tactical advantage you, you must have pirates as your neighbors i guess where you are <laughs> i read it somewhere and that sort of stuff sticks in my brain just like protons of light stick in my eyes yes. i just remember that stuff but that that they do on and you know what it does make sense it does make think sense that's it. right yeah mm. uh, it's not because they've lost their eye in a fight it's because they're adapting one eye to darkness so they've got a tactical tactical advantage when they were fighting down in the bilge. Exactly, (laughs) quite so. (laughs) Fred, it's always a a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Great pleasure to talk to you too, Andrew. Thank you. And make sure you keep wearing the eye patch. I I will, yes, but not for the same reason. (laughs) I couldn't fight my way out of a wet paper bag. Uh, We'll catch you next week. That sounds great. Thanks a lot. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you so much, as always, for listening to us, following us, tweeting us, ignoring us, whatever it is you do uh, but don't forget to share us with your friends, uh, send us your notes and messages and photos on Facebook and uh, keep on listening every week and don't forget to review us on iTunes and we'll catch you next time on the Space Nuts Space
0: Nuts you will be listening to the Space Nuts podcast
1: Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Boom, and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor
0: Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.